From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and SiriusXM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on SiriusXM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest in this episode is Dr. Stephanie Abuel. Stephanie is professor and vice chair of faculty affairs in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. In her long and distinguished career, She's served in several leadership positions here at Penn, including as medical director, fellowship director, and vice chair of emergency medicine since 2004. Since 2001, Stephanie Buell has been the executive director of FOCUS, F-O-C-U-S, on health and leadership for women, which is a unique faculty development program designed to recruit, retain, and advance women faculty and promote women's health research. We talk about that remarkable program and its great success, as well as a project that we did together, an applied research project funded by the National Institutes of Health on changing the culture of academic medicine to help advance the careers of women in medicine. We talk also about how to manage Uh, in a dual career family, and so much more, including with one of the callers into the radio show. So now, without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Stephanie Abuel about how women can succeed in high-pressure, historically male-dominated workplaces. Stephanie Buell, welcome to Work and Life. Thanks so much for having me, Stu. Well, it's great to be here. It's it's wonderful to have you here. So uh, way back in the day, in the early 90s, you arrived here as a resident uh, to get your training and uh, had already a, a challenging and demanding role in emergency medicine here at Penn. What led to your interest and research in professional development for women in medicine? Yeah, well... I think a lot of it actually has to do with the generation that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. So uh, I just, uh, to let everyone know, I graduated from college in 1975. So that gives you a sense. And it was an incredibly exciting time. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. the women's movement. And it completely changed, I think, the aspirations, certainly the opportunities that women had. So I rode that wave Um, and found it incredibly exciting, went to medical school. And by the time I was in medical school, that would have been the late 70s, Mm -hmm. graduating in 1980, uh, women made up about 25% of medical school classes. Um, And then since then, of course, they are now virtually 50%, between 45 and 50% of medical school classes, right, where they've been for now the last almost 20 years. So I looked around me and I saw this incredibly sort of exciting time with all women colleagues and men colleagues noticing that this was a big change in the culture to have all the women in medical school that hadn't been there before. And then when I got... Let me jump in there and ask you, what was most obvious to you in in terms of what you saw as uh, change happening? What, What was... 
What was clearly evident to you, like on a regular basis? Well, back then, I think there was a lot of unconscious bias, honestly, and it was visible. Um, so for those of our listeners who don't yeah. know what that term means, define it, please. Right. So unconscious bias, uh, for which there is just really remarkable literature about it in mm -hmm. sociology and psychology, is sort of the embedded generalizations. They're really the social stereotypes that we have that are outside of our awareness. Mm -hmm. So you may say, I am not biased against women. Women can do everything men can do, and I'm so happy that I have colleagues who are women. But there's some part of you that has a, a social stereotype that this isn't actually what women do or certainly what they mm -hmm. hadn't done for you know decades um so so you have an inherent bias and it's it's negative in the sense that mm -hmm. we devalue what women do um often and particularly when they're in male-dominated fields and that gets expressed in words and, and then, actions and actions and again really important to point out that it's not deliberate mm -hmm. i mean especially in medicine where people feel that they're objective um, I mean, most people feel they're objective. You, you don't even realize that unconscious bias is working mm -hmm. on your decisions and your behavior, and it can be actually in direct conflict with what you say you believe. Mm -hmm. So I noticed it um, a lot, as, as did most women in the early 80s. Now, I think unconscious bias has actually decreased. It's mm -hmm. not gone. There's a greater awareness now. There's a greater of awareness. Of inherent biases and, and or as implicit biases. But so can you give an example of like how you saw that when you were first starting out? Like what was... Oh, it would be... What was most evident to you? Um, oh, just opportunities even that were available. Hmm. Um, uh, and again... Not deliberate, but saying, uh, would, uh, looking at a bunch of medical students who, you know, and picking someone to come and do the suturing under the guidance of an attending, mm -hmm. or, or just, you know, a reluctance to um, pull the women out to have the same opportunities, mm -hmm. or maybe comments, sometimes comments. Um, but again, uh, that's one thing which I think we've made a lot of progress because as there are more women and there are more role models, mm -hmm. and and this isn't as unusual. I think it's 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 helped a lot with unconscious bias, but. But it you, still exists. It's still there. It's still there. Perhaps uh, we're in a better place than we were when you first started out here. That's correct. In the early 80s. So, so you encountered this, mm -hmm. and that somehow inspired you or motivated you to want to do something about it. It, it did. And, and I, I, you know, it took me about 10 years as a faculty member from when I, you know, started 10 years in to really um, feel that it was something that I wanted to work on, something that I felt pretty passionate about. Uh, as, as, you know, with, with 10 years, I got to see um, some of the fallout, uh, women not having the same mm. opportunities um, or getting discouraged mm. uh, and then, you know, having less confidence because of that, you know, th those experiences. So, you know, I wanted... And, and that confidence affected their medical practice or more their, their willingness to step up for, for executive roles or I, leadership roles? Yes, I think the latter. I mean, I, I think it, it was mostly for confidence to take on mm -hmm. leadership. 
uh, you know, they were quite confident in their in their medical skills. I mean, women have done equally as well. In fact, well, of course, you know, there's 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 a recent study that was actually done looking at a million and a half Medicaid hospitalizations, and the women physicians actually had lower mortality rates at 30 days and less readmissions. You're saying that there's evidence to suggest that women produce better medical outcomes than men. Well, and again, this is one particular study looking at two outcomes, again, 30-day mortality and 30-day readmission. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting. It was a slight difference. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's not, but it was a significant difference, Mm -hmm. but slight, because they were looking at this very large number of patients. So you saw people becoming discouraged. So I did. I saw women discouraged um, and, and their confidence affected. Confidence eroded. Uh, but I also mm. saw, you know, like, not to paint a totally discouraging picture. There were also bright points. I mean, the more women that came behind us, I mm. remember. As the decade go on, went on, there were more women. Um, there's power in numbers. Um, and there became a community of women who could glean support from being with each other mm-hmm. and even sharing some of the challenging experiences. Uh, and, and that's a key part, I think, of focus, for example, is is making sure that there is a community uh, where where women can enjoy each other's company, share strategies, share experiences and get, uh, you know, skill building, faculty development uh, offerings, all kinds of things. So tell us about what FOCUS is, F-O-C-U-S. Is that an acronym that stands no, for something? It's no. just, just it's, a, it's just a, a word. term that grabs one's attention. It's just let's focus, right? Okay, let's focus. That, right. that makes sense. Uh, what is FOCUS and what right. what's what's your proudest achievement with, uh, with FOCUS over the time that you have uh, been its director, and that is nearing 20 years? Do I have that well, right? Well, 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, so FOCUS, and I, I, we are fortunate that, that the medical school supports the FOCUS program, which actually is, is not an everyday occurrence at medical schools. A lot of medical schools have programs uh, that they say are, quote, women in medicine programs, mm-hmm. but they don't have a budget. Mm-hmm. And so they run on volunteerism and don't, they're not able to have the kinds of initiatives that we have. So uh, f- first of all, FOCUS has a budget so that it protects um, a little bit of my time so that mm-hmm. I can <laughs> do the work of the executive director and develop initiatives along with a, a um, group, a, a leadership group that we have. Uh, and and we try uh, to come up with as many initiatives as we can handle. Uh, in fact, right now we have about 13 ongoing initiatives, mm. um, and they vary everywhere from an annual fall conference where we have over 200 women at the medical school assemble for a day of plenary speakers. These are nationally recognized women, um, and sometimes we do small groups, but it's a great day. Then we have a seminar series so that we have um, various seminars over the course of the year. Some of them are on skill building, you know, negotiation, time management, um, running a team, things like that. Uh, We have um, research initiatives, and that's the other piece that makes focus different from programs at other medical schools. Mm -hmm. We um, one of our two missions is not only the advancement of women through programs, 
but also research. So we do research ourselves, and we also bring in outside money to um, give fellowships to students who work with faculty, and they do research. Hmm. So that so, advances their careers and their connections to each other, growing the community of, uh, of medical faculty, women medical faculty here and, and elsewhere. So about what are you most proud as you look back mm. on the, the, your mm. tenure as the director of uh, Focus <laughs> so far? What am I most proud? I'm a uh, great question. Make me pick one, huh? Because there, there's so many of our programs, I think, uh, have been highlights. I'm most proud that we continue um, through the decades to try to like reassess, remeet uh, the needs of the women faculty, uh, and and just continue to sort of chip away and plug away and do the research needed. I think I guess I'm most proud mm-hmm. of of, of uh, our NIH TAC trial. Mm-hmm. Um, that was just a huge opportunity. Um, that was was really pretty thrilling. Um, you know, the NIH offered. Uh, That's the National Institutes of, of Health. Right. And TAC trial means what? <laughs> Transforming academic culture. Right. And trial in the sense that this was something we were going to experiment with. Yes. So the the NIH uh, trial, the mm-hmm. experiment uh, mm-hmm. that we got funding for, can you give us just a, a brief um, summary of what that, um, that research program was about and what we have found so far about the interventions that that uh, that we tried so it was a randomized trial that was an intervention trial so that's what made it unique is that a lot of research on women's advancement has to do with what are the causes Mm -hmm. of the slow advancement or what holds women back Mm -hmm. what are the challenges this was an intervention trial so uh we we devised an intervention uh, and randomized departments in the School of Medicine so that there were 14 in the control group and 13 in the intervention group. And the junior women in those departments, along with their full departments and the leadership of those departments, got randomized to either the intervention or to the control group. And Mm -hmm. so the control group gets nothing for three years, and the intervention group the women and the departments go through this multifaceted intervention, Mm -hmm. which was targeted at a number of things. So it was a complex trial, but to Mm -hmm. keep it simple, it was a multifaceted intervention that was aimed at the junior women, the assistant professors themselves, and they did the total leadership program Which with you. Which I did and yes. some of my colleagues, so I, we can talk more about that. So, so this, that was one of the things that, that we did. So that was a fundamental part of the intervention uh, aimed at the assistant professor women. And then they went did a manuscript writing group mm-hmm. where they worked on manuscripts as a cohort along with two senior women who guided them through that process. So those were both uh, interventions at the level of the individual uh junior woman faculty, helping her to increase her skill and productivity in getting publications, which is an important measure of uh, academic success, probably the most important. Uh, And with the Total Leadership Initiative, we were trying to help people to better align what's important with what they do and to become more effective, more efficient at, at using their time well. 
uh, and creating a greater sense of harmony, reducing stress uh, among the different parts of their lives. So, so in one four-month period, they did one of, one of those programs. In the other four-month period, in the space of a year, they did the other. That's correct. And then uh, just quickly, the other parts of the intervention, uh, one was aimed at the department itself mm-hmm. where both men and women got together and came up with a, uh, a department intervention that could have been anything they wanted. So they just devised something for their specific department. Mm-hmm. We call it a local intervention. Mm-hmm. And they came up with all kinds of interesting things, you know, one department um, worked on their call system, which may sound like, what are you talking about? But, you know, the, the overnight call and the weekend call that faculty do to cover services, mm-hmm. clinical service, uh, is really important to their lives. Of course. And uh, one department, for example, felt, boy, we're not really being as fair as we should be mm-hmm. to the junior faculty. And they revised their call system to, to better support their junior faculty. Another department, for example, radiology, mm-hmm. got home workstations. Now, what's a home mm. workstation? Um, you know, a radiologist looks at images on a computer screen, and normally that's at the hospital where they work. Right. But for night and weekend call, um, they can now look at those images from their homes. So this was huge. Wow. You know, a, so just giving changer. just giving you an idea sure. of the variation, the customized local the, initiatives that the uh, various departments came up with. And then at the institution level, right, there was also an attempt to intervene in the culture of academic medicine. That's correct. And that was uh, aimed at the leadership. So that would be the department chairs, the division chiefs, the vice deans, the dean, and the dean, uh, who at the time that the trial started was Arthur Rubenstein, was incredibly supportive of this mm-hmm. and really um, just was a, a, a true uh, colleague uh, in, in working on this. And we had every single department chair um, enter into the trial mm-hmm. and, and consent to So a huge to commitment yeah. um, by NIH, by the school, um, by you, our team, all the participants. What did we learn okay. from, from that study so far? Right, right. So What are the big takeaways the big, that, that listeners who are both um, – Consumers of medical practice, as well as those who might be involved in administering medical practice in our country, um, what what's most important in terms of what we've learned right. so far? Right. Well, so we, we, we measured a number of things. We measured the culture. We measured academic productivity. We measured work-life um, stress, work-life conflict, work-family conflict, mm-hmm. um, and something called self-efficacy or, or your confidence that you're going to be able to um, be successful in your career. Mm-hmm. And what we found was that um, academic productivity and self-efficacy improved significantly over the three-year trial, but in both the intervention group and the control group. So what do you make of that? Well, um, there's a number of different explanations, and we're not sure. I mean, I would like to believe and, and, and that what we really did was we actually had an impact across the entire school. It was a very mm-hmm. visible trial. Mm-hmm. Um, it went on for four years, three years of the actual intervention, but four years total. And uh, it, it, you know, we were it was highlighted in various publications. Mm-hmm. There was a lot about it, and, and I'd love to believe 
Now, you know, I can't say that's true. I mean, it may be that, in fact, our intervention um, wasn't the right intervention for that. But what we did find was that if you looked just at the PhD group, Mm -hmm. they actually did increase their academic productivity significantly compared to the PhDs that were in the control group. Not the MDs. Right, but not the MDs. Well, you know, maybe in fact a single intervention like this over faculty who have very different careers because Mm -hmm. careers for faculty who have clinical practices versus faculty who are PhDs and are really doing research, often basic science research, they're, they're very different careers and mm-hmm. they're different lives. And maybe, in fact, um, we need to think more about being, um, you know, tailoring our mm. intervention more specifically. Now, we also did find, though, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that the while the productivity improvement was equal across the two groups, the amount of time spent by people in the medical track uh, was was somewhat significantly mm-hmm. less, so that their rate of productivity in terms of hours was was somewhat greater. Absolutely, correct? no, absolutely. So they were in, in a sense more efficient in terms of how they were going about getting uh, their publication records uh, strengthened. Right, and this was a significant difference between the intervention group, Mm -hmm. and the control group. So the intervention group was able to shave off about four hours a week of Mm -hmm. work time Mm -hmm. with the same increase in productivity. Right. So that's... That That is an important distinction. That's important. And and that may be the most important thing because, you know, academic medicine is... is, There's a significant number of hours a week that, that one puts in and uh, to be able to shave off some of that time and yet still be increasingly productive mm-hmm. over those three years right. is, uh, is significant and exciting. We were excited by that. Um, and, you know, again, is it working smarter? Is it efficiencies that came about through some aspect of, of this multifaceted intervention? At the department level. At the department level. Or some through, combination. Or some combination, Right. And certainly that's one of the things that we try to emphasize in the total leadership work, right, is, is to eliminate waste or to right. focus most of your energy and attention on the things that matter most to you after getting clear about what those priorities are. So um, what, what's the big idea as you, as you look back on what we've done so far and what, what's next in terms of uh, opening the pathways for, for women in academic medicine? What have we learned and where do you want to go next with uh, – mm-hmm with that drive to make things better for the the women coming after you? Well, uh, I'll tell you, I think that one of the big learnings from the trial, in addition to what we've talked about, was just this whole cohort phenomenon that I can't prove was beneficial. But boy, to see what happens when you bring faculty together um, who otherwise can often feel quite isolated. Yes. This is uh, just exciting, and we've taken that concept and, and used it to work on the Pathways program, mm-hmm. which you and I are also collaborating on. And really, that that was part of at least my excitement about working with another cohort where you bring faculty together um, and they share strategies in addition to learning from senior mentors 
uh, and senior faculty. And so the cohort phenomenon, just to clarify that, because I think it is a really important observation, and it's certainly something when we followed up with that first wave of participants in the NIH study the next year, and we talked to them about you know what they took away, what they recall, much of their commentary uh, you know, and a lot of the anecdotal evidence that we got was that their sense of being a part of a community where there was mutual support, where they could talk about the real issues facing them and develop strategies uh, for how to cope with, you know, the, the incredible strains and stresses of being a junior woman faculty member uh, and to provide that support for other people. Um, in addition from, you know, to, to, to feel that support from the faculty and the administration, that being together was perhaps the most important aspect of, of what they did. Yes. Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. And that was all sort of qualitative mm-hmm. data and data that um, is not sort of part of what we've discussed in terms of the numbers. And, right. and you know, that's I, I, I continue to believe that this working with cohorts uh, and supporting them and then experimenting more. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm hoping that the NIH at some point uh, will uh, have another funding opportunity. This mm-hmm. was a, a one-time funding opportunity that, that hasn't mm-hmm. happened again because of some of the um, you know, cutbacks with NIH. But, but again, there just needs to be more research. We need to try and experiment with things. Yeah, and perhaps get... Uh better measures or ways of capturing those intangibles of uh, of um, community, a sense of belonging and mutual support that are, uh, you know, again, intangible, difficult to assess, but crucial to uh, what it is, you know, that, that young people, young women need to, uh, to be able to have the confidence to progress uh, in their, in their lives, in their careers. Hi, this is Stu Friedman. I hope you're enjoying this conversation, and I'm just so glad you're listening. If you like the Work and Life podcast, I would personally appreciate your taking just a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you access this podcast, whatever your favorite platform is. We are relatively new as a podcast, uh, and our team is working really hard to bring you for free the best of the conversations that took place on my Sirius XM radio show, but were previously available only to paid subscribers. So every positive rating and review helps us to grow our capacity to move faster toward the goal of sharing useful information and insights about how to create harmony among the different parts of life with people who wouldn't otherwise have access. So please do help us, and if you have ideas for what we can do to improve our impact, please write to me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks, and now, back to the show. Stephanie, let's talk a little bit about um, dual career couples in medicine. What What's the the greatest challenge that they face uh, that you have seen, been a part of, helped people with, mm. experienced yourself? Mm. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I I can't help it, but again, have a little bit of this generational lens, mm-hmm. knowing that 
Um, in our society, uh, there's data to show that back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, you know, most dual, uh, most most parents of, of families, mm-hmm. um, one person was out working and one was home, mm-hmm. um, managing the home. And we, we came up with a sort of an ideal worker norm from decades mm-hmm. of that, you know, th- that being the norm of families in our society. And certainly in medicine. The ideal um, worker being someone who is 24-7 available and anything else happening outside of work is taken care of by somebody by else. By somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it, it then grew to expect that kind of commitment, mm-hmm. um, really often to the exclusion of, of managing personal and family mm-hmm. issues. So here we are, um, fast forward to 2017, and now, um, as certainly in medicine, most uh, parents of, of and doctor parents, and, and they may be married to another physician, but they may be married to mm-hmm. someone else, are, are both working. Um, and if you look at a recent study of young um, women uh, and medicine in academic medicine, sort of mm-hmm. in their early career, is something like 86% of the women are married to a full-time um, uh, spouse who works full-time. Uh-huh. And in, for men, it's about uh, 45 or 50%. Wow. So it disproportionately affects women. It's more of them are in right. dual-career couples where both couples are working full-time. So what do I see as the big problem? Yes. That, that they can't do it all. Uh, we've got a call from Kelly in San Diego. Kelly, welcome to Work and Life. Uh, hello, how are you doing today? We're doing well. Tell us, what is your story? So uh, my story or our story is that I am a full-time OBGYN, still taking overnight calls four to five times a month, as well as working on a full schedule and being a director of healthcare business. My husband is a prior military and CEO of a nonprofit. We have a three-year-old child. And the way that we manage it is my mom is 24-7, so she um, has retired and has mm-hmm. chosen to live with us. Um, I, at one point, I had to go overseas, go bachelor with my child, and my husband stayed here to manage the business. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, the management of that is definitely, it's a balance. We have a calendar. We talk about everything. We sit down for family dinners most nights, or at least I call on the phone when dinner is happening. Um, very supportive husband, whereas I have other partners in my practice where their husbands may stay home so that they can be that 24-7 person. Mm-hmm. But we all support each other in what we're doing. And that being said, we're also moving forward in our careers, um, you know, progressing being department heads or directors and executive officers in our hospital organization. Well, that's, that's a very inspiring story, yes. Kelly. Thank you so much for sharing it. So you've got... Your mom, who's helping with childcare, that's that's a key part of your support system. Do I have that right? Correct, correct. And, and our and, organization is actually very good about that as well, as far as having early and late time for daycare. So, Stephanie, what would you like to know about uh, Kelly's story that might be uh, of interest to other listeners too? Well, I, I'm. It is an inspiring story. I, you've obviously got a great attitude, and you're making it work. So tell us what it, you you just mentioned that there was something about early and late daycare or something. I think some of these daycare issues and um, flexibility that workplaces can can adopt are are just going to be critical to moving mm-hmm. forward. So can you tell yes. us a little bit about 
uh, more specifically about the, something positive about your workplace. I couldn't quite hear it. So the positive thing about the, um, the daycare or preschool that's provided, um, it's from birth until five years old. It starts at, some centers start at 5.30 in the morning, but definitely by 6 o'clock in the morning, and they stay open anywhere between 6 and 7 p.m. at night. Um, and they're close to the, the locations that most of the physicians work, so near the hospital or their clinic. Um, and, you know, they they work with the parents. They definitely understand our schedules, and, they, it's you know, it's a family environment. They're the family away from mm-hmm. the mom and the dad, essentially. So, you know, what, what I'm curious about, Kelly, is what, what you see as the most important element in your success strategy. Like, what, what's the critical factor that is enabling you to, uh, to, bo- you know, to thrive in your career and for your family to thrive as well? Well, definitely knowing what your limitations are, knowing when your, your plate is too full or the family's plate is too full. Mm-hmm. Making time for the family, like I said, we try to have dinner together every night, and That's we are definitely, yeah, definitely blessed to have. You know, my mom is able to cook dinner and organize things for us, so there's always a warm meal on the table when we get home. Um, and then on the weekends, we try to make sure at least one day is family day. So, you know, whatever day I'm not on mm-hmm. call is family day, and we still have date night um, and try to hang out with our friends. With your friends, this yes. is this is. We still have friends. You still have friends. That's yeah. very impressive. And it, awesome. <laughs> so, Stephanie, uh, yeah, one I mean, more I comment think, or question yeah, you, for Kelly, you, and then we'll let her go. Those are great tips, and I, I think that uh, you know we often refer to those in some of our sessions as rituals. You know, family rituals that you are going to be just dedicated to, and and for the most part commit to. So like the evening family dinner or the one day of the weekend together as a family. And just, uh, you know, sounds like you're just doing that and have decided, you know, that that's going to be the priority. And that's wonderful. That's how it's working. That's part of how it's working. Kelly, this is... uh, One last thing I would say is make time for yourself. Because when I'm post-call and I know like, this is how much time I can be, I need by myself. Mm-hmm. So you make time for yourself. Whether that's four hours or 12 mm-hmm. hours, you make time for yourself. Right. So can you tell us what do you do in your time that is just for you? So just for me usually is, you know, getting my hair done, getting mm-hmm. my nails done, making sure I still manage all the finances, so making sure that's all paid. And then, you know, being able to talk, to spend time alone with my mom, my son, or my husband, as well as make that time for myself. So it's all the fun stuff. And making sure you go on a trip by yourself with your friends at least once a year. Wow. Yeah. Well, this this sounds like a, a prescription for happiness and success. Kelly, thank you so much for calling Work and Life. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Love your show. All right. We're talking about dual career issues, uh, parents trying to do it all. Uh, and how you figure out how, well, not to do it all. Um, so, Stephanie, while, while we're on the subject, how did you manage? Now, you have three children. Do I have that right? I have three boys. Three boys, mm-hmm. and they're? They're 28, 26, and 20. So I'm right. an empty nester now. And so how did you, how did you and your husband, Is, full-time career, 
another field, right? Not not a medical. No, in medicine. Oh, yes. okay. Actually, in emergency medicine, oh, also. Okay, so yeah. I... we have uh, enjoyed over the years all the shop talk. I know some people mm-hmm. roll their eyes. <laughs> Our children used to when they were young, but uh, uh, no, we we uh, have enjoyed that, and uh, and uh, you know it's interesting. I I. Definitely the arrangement that you, the two um, partners have in a relationship, as you've just mentioned, it's critical to understanding that you value the same things, mm-hmm. uh, but continually reassessing. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, it, we did the best we could like everybody does. Mm-hmm. I think um, part of what helped made it work for us was that uh, we did divide things up uh, very equally in in a lot of mm. ways. Now, what's interesting is that it was equal, but it was different. My husband took care of every car service, the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything broke down, I never even heard about it. I mm. mean, and so, and I did do more of the. Um, Childcare and 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 again, he was very involved with our kids. So mm-hmm. let's—I don't mean to give that. I'll hear about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, but just we divided it up. But there was a division of labor, and some people do it differently. It doesn't matter how you do it, just as long as it feels um, fair and no mm. one gets resentful, mm-hmm. and that there's a mutual understanding. And it doesn't even have to be that both careers are equally important. If mm-hmm. that doesn't you know, what the two people have decided. But for us, uh, we were quite equal, and um, mm-hmm. it was divisional labor. <laughs> so you, you each had different responsibilities, and those probably changed over time, no? Uh, yes, they did. So, so you must have had uh, a commitment to communicating about what was important now, what, was, what will be important in the future, or, or as things change, as new children arrived, changes in your career so how did you maintain that steady flow of information exchange of conversation of you know right. of, of adjusting and learning from each other how you were changing right uh, I I think the ritual piece that's been mentioned is it for us that was so important we mm-hmm. did do dinner every night we could mm-hmm. together even if dinner was at nine o'clock and and uh, but it was always together. I tell my kids to have a big snack when they got home from school, and then be ready for dinner at nine o'clock. <laughs> well, I think that those are important words of wisdom that it'll be good for us to to wind down on here. Uh, that was something that that we tried to do in our family as well to be together around the dinner table every night, and that's certainly something that we know is is an important part of of keeping families whole and connected to each other and talking about how things really are, uh, so that you can be there for each other and feel a sense of connection. Uh, so that's uh, clearly one important and uh, you know achievable goal for most people if you make the commitment to it. Uh, if, the, if there's one thing you could leave our listeners with, Stephanie, what would it be in terms of what you've learned in your uh, in- incredibly admirable, I dare say, noble work that you've been doing in helping women to advance in medicine in 10 seconds. What's yeah, the big I th- idea? I think one of the, there's many, one of the big ideas is ask for what you need. And I think that we need to push the workplaces, not just in medicine, across the board. And I think 
we often suffer in silence, both men and women, mm-hmm. and think, oh, this is impossible. The boss will say no, or we've never done it that way, so why it's not going to happen now? But lo and behold, sometimes when you ask for what you need, you get it, and that can really make a difference. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Stephanie Abuel and that you took away some useful ideas about how to cut into unconscious bias at work, how to support and promote women, and how to manage in a dual career partnership. So here's a challenge for you, an invitation. Picking up on that last theme, if you're interested in better managing life as a partner in a dual career family, why not try experimenting with one of the ideas you heard about or were thinking about as you were listening just now. Maybe it's making more fruitful use of your time together as a family during meals. If you try this or anything that might have occurred to you that you think would make things better for your relationship with your spouse and your family and be good for your work and career as well, write to me. Let me know how your experiment went. I would love to hear from you. I really enjoy hearing from listeners. You can tweet at Stu Friedman or email me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. To find out more about Dr. Stephanie Abuel, that's A-B-B-U-H-L, just check out her faculty page at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. One more note Way back in episode six, I spoke with Emily Esfahani-Smith about her great book, The Power of Meaning. And I just want to point out that she has a piece in the Washington Post entitled, Technology is Impairing Our Ability to Be Alone, Research Shows. It's getting a lot of attention because, well, it's important and useful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.